Welcome to the Connecticut Case Law Podcast. Each week we examine the latest appeals decided by the Connecticut Supreme Court and the Connecticut Appellate Court. We focus on three areas of law, criminal law, personal injury law, and family law, each sponsored by a firm that concentrates in that type of law. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and get the newest episode each week and stay up to date on the latest case law. You can also visit our website, ConnecticutCaseLawPodcast.com, and register to get an alert every time a new episode is released. And now, let's get into the latest decisions after a quick word from our first sponsor. Next up, criminal law cases. If you know someone who needs the advice of a criminal defense or civil rights attorney, the lawyers at Ruan Attorneys should be the first firm you turn to. Our lawyers handle criminal cases in every courthouse in the state, from juvenile cases through arguing and winning in the Connecticut Supreme Court, and they welcome your referrals. Our trial team is led by attorney Jim Ruane, one of the few board-certified criminal trial specialists in the state. And Ruane Attorneys has the experience and relationships to handle any type of criminal case you throw at them. Our civil rights team is led by attorney Dan Lage, twice selected as an award-winning lawyer by the Connecticut Law Tribune. What's more, Ruane Attorneys is always available to consult with fellow attorneys on criminal law issues at any time. Put the power of over 500 five-star reviews to work for your criminal case referrals by trusting Ruane Attorneys with your referral. Visit RuaneAttorneys.com for more information or email our team at referral at RuaneAttorneys.com. What's up, everybody? It's your boy, Dan Lage, back on the Connecticut Case Law Podcast. It's been a couple of weeks. I took some time off. Sue me. But you know what? I'm here to settle that debt. I'm going to pay up. I've got content this week. By the way, somebody else out there might have a debt to settle with me. I don't know if you've seen. There's case law podcasts starting to pop up all over Spotify, all over the country. I'm not going to say I'm the one that started it. I'm not going to say Jay Ruane was the pioneer in this endeavor. I'm definitely not going to say that. Instead, what I'm going to do is be professional and get right into the cases this week. We are going to start with a case that I know very well. It's a case that's very personal to me, not a case that I had, but uh, it's a case that I'm familiar with because there were many co-defendants. I'll let you do the math on that. The case is State versus Sales. Your citation is AC43500. Judge Alexander, on your opinion, officially released February 23rd, 2021. Here are your facts. On April 6th, 2015, your defendant, Dwayne Sales, was driving around Fairhaven with a young man named Leighton Vanderberg and another young man named Jamal Sumler. The three men proceeded to the Fairhaven section, driving around Forbes Avenue before stopping at a convenience store parking on the street. The defendant and Sumler entered the store while Vanderberg remained in the vehicle. Sumler entered the store first as he approached the counter, pointed a pistol at the victim, Mr. Sanjay Patel. The defendant entered the store shortly thereafter and pulled out a pistol and after a few moments shot the victim. He was then handed cigars and cash. Sumler and the victim engaged in a physical altercation and the defendant fled. And after he left, Sumler shot the victim. A witness spotted the men leaving the store after hearing gunshots and running outside he called 911. Police recovered evidence from the scene, including video surveillance. The two men ran toward Vanderberg, who witnesses cigars falling out of the defendant's pockets. They directed Vanderberg to drive toward the Church Street South housing complex. 
Vandenberg watched as the defendant placed the cigars and his sweatshirt into a dumpster. The defendant commented that the sweatshirt was hot. As the three men walked toward the defendant's apartment, Vandenberg realized that they had just robbed the store. He left after receiving some money from the defendant and cigars from Mr. Sumler. The next night, Vandenberg discovered that someone had been killed at the store and he informed his probation officer about what transpired. He was then arrested and met with detectives on April 14, 2015. He identified the defendant and Sumler from the video footage. After securing a warrant, the defendant's home was searched and he was taken to the police station accompanied by his mother who was, and he was interviewed by two detectives. The police then arrested the defendant we're now in May 2015. The defendant admitted to a fellow inmate while in pretrial custody that he and Sumler had shot the victim during the robbery. After being charged, the defendant filed pretrial motions to suppress, which were denied. He was convicted following a jury trial on many counts. The important one here is felony murder, and he was given a sentence of 80 years. So let's go to our first claim in this case. We have our facts, convenience store robbery, Claim one, motion to suppress regarding violation of Miranda rights. The defendant claims that the trial court improperly denied his motions to suppress certain evidence. Specifically, he contends that police detectives violated his Miranda rights and his rights pursuant to Article 1, Section 8 of our state constitution when they continued to interrogate him after he invoked his right to counsel. The defendant opined that one, his interview with detectives on April 15th was custodial and therefore Miranda protections apply. And second, he invoked his rights to remain silent and have an attorney present. Third, despite his invocation of his Miranda rights, the detectives continued to question him regarding the location of his cell phone. And fourth, the continued questioning conducted to obtain incriminating evidence constitute a violation of his rights to remain silent and have counsel present. He further urged that even if the court were to find that no remedy exists for the type of Miranda violation that occurred, that the court adopt a prophylactic rule that would render any incriminating evidence inadmissible if it is obtained after a sub suspect invokes his right to remain silent or have counsel present. State of Connecticut countered that even if Miranda violations occurred here, the fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine does not apply to physical evidence under these circumstances. The following facts are relevant to these claims. In the defendant's first motion to suppress, filed on January 16, 2018, where he sought to suppress the contents of his cell phone, which he alleged had been seized in violation of the constitutions of the state and the country, the defendant claimed that after his unambiguous request for counsel during his interview at the police station, Detective Perone of the New Haven Police Department asked him where his cell phone was located. Perone then obtained the cell phone from the defendant's mother, and the next day he prepares a search warrant to obtain the data contained therein. The warrant was granted. The defendant argued in that motion to suppress that these detectives lacked probable cause to seize his cell phone on April 15th, and at the time did not possess a warrant to seize the phone. Additionally, he claimed that the detectives continued to interview him after he had requested the presence of counsel, such that the contents of the cell phone were fruit of the poisonous tree, and as a result of the inaccuracies in Perone's warrant application regarding the cell phone. He filed another motion to suppress, alleging that the contents of his cell phone were inadmissible because 
of the constitutional violations. He again claimed that the contents of the phone were fruit of the poisonous tree and that the assertions contained in the warrant applications were known to be false or were made with reckless disregard for the truth. And therefore, he was entitled to a hearing pursuant to Franks versus Delaware. The citation for that well-known case is 438 U.S. 154. The motions to suppress were heard. Both were denied. The state subsequently used the defendant's cell phone as part of its cases, including the GPS information, the defendant's internet search history, and the communications between the defendant, Sumler, and Vanderberg on the night of the murder. On April 23, 2018, the court issued a supplemental memorandum of decision setting forth its findings regarding these motions to suppress. The court found that Vanderberg made a statement to the New Haven police indicating that he had driven the defendant and Sumler to the store where they committed the robbery and murder. On that day, the defendant used his cell phone before and after the shooting. On April 15, 2015, the police get their warrant for the defendant's residence. This warrant did not include any cell phone. They get a ski mask and gloves. Later that day, the defendant agreed to come down and speak with the New Haven detectives. He was not placed under arrest. He was free to leave at any time. After a few minutes into the interview, the defendant requested to speak with an attorney, and the detectives terminated the interview. After the defendant's invocation, Perone, worried about losing evidence and noticing that the defendant's mother had his cell phone, approached her and asked for it. She relinquished possession of the phone to Perone. Regarding possession of the cell phone, the court concluded that the detectives were justified in seizing it under the facts of this case and the exigent circumstances and inevitable discovery exceptions to the Fourth Amendment's warrant requirement. The court also found that Perone had probable cause to seize the phone and prevent the destruction of evidence. With respect to the second motion to suppress, the court found that Perone had not made any false statements knowingly or intentionally or with reckless disregard for the truth in his warrant application. We're at our standard of review on this claim regarding motions to suppress a finding of fact will not be disturbed unless it is clearly erroneous in light of the evidence and pleadings in the whole record when a question of fact is essential to the outcome of a particular legal determination that implicates a defendant's constitutional rights and the credibility of the witnesses is not the primary issue, the appellate court's deference to the trial court's findings is tempered by a scrupulous examination of the record to ascertain the trial court's findings are supported by substantial evidence. Where the legal conclusions are challenged, the appellate court's review is plenary, and it must determine whether they are logically and legally correct and whether they find support in the facts. Court cites State versus Ingala, 199 Connecticut Appellate, 240. So let's see how the court shook down, shall we? As a general matter, the prosecution may not use exculpatory or inculpatory statements stemming from a custodial interrogation unless it demonstrates the use of procedural safeguards to secure the privilege against self-incrimination. However, love that however, the United States Supreme Court has held that a violation of Miranda does not require suppression of physical evidence. The United States versus Patain is your citation for that very ugly principle, 542 U.S. 630. In Patain, the Supreme Court noted that the core protection of the self-incrimination clause is a prohibition on compelling a defendant to testify against himself at trial. The court stated that the clause cannot be violated by the introduction of non-testimonial evidence obtained as a result of voluntary statements. 
The appellate court in Connecticut has followed the rules established in Patain, State versus Mangual, 2014. The police obtained a search and seizure warrant in that case for an apartment. The police detained the defendant without providing Miranda warnings. An officer asked the defendant if there were any drugs or weapons in the apartment. The defendant responded, well, of course there is. The police followed the defendant into her bedroom where she showed him where the drugs were located and she was placed under arrest. The defendant in that case filed a motion to suppress her statement on the grounds that she had been in custody and questioned before having her Miranda rights read. Our Supreme Court concluded that, quote, a statement that is obtained in violation of Miranda does not require suppression of the physical fruits of the suspect's unwarned but otherwise voluntary statements, unquote. Makes no sense to me. Additionally, in State versus Bardales, Bardales, 164 Connecticut Appellate 582, the police obtained a warrant to search the defendant's residence and person after confidential informant indicated that the defendant stored illegal firearms for sale. Thereafter, the police stopped the defendant in his vehicle and asked if there was, quote, anything in the car he needed to be concerned about, unquote. The defendant admitted that there was cocaine in the car and was arrested. At trial, the defendant in that case moved to suppress the statement regarding the cocaine and on appeal claimed that the court improperly denied his motion to suppress as a result of its misapplication of the public safety exception. This court found that even if the public safety exception did not apply, the defendant was not necessarily entitled to suppression as a result of a Miranda violation. Back to our case. Here, based on precedent previously discussed, even if a Miranda violation would have occurred when Perone asked about the cell phone after Mr. Sales invoked his right to counsel, the cell phone and its contents are not subject to suppression under the fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine. The remedy for such a violation would be limited to suppression of the defendant's response to the questioning, not the actual cell phone or its contents. If you ask Dan Lage, I don't really see a difference. Moving on. The court concludes, therefore, that the defendant's motion to suppress under the United States Constitution was properly denied. Regardless of this finding, the defendant further requested that the court adopt a prophylactic rule. Sounds like a good idea. Let's see what happens. This rule would render any incriminating evidence inadmissible if it is obtained after a suspect invokes his right to remain silent or to have counsel present. Specifically, the defendant proposes, quote, in a custodial interrogation. If incriminating evidence is obtained from a suspect after he has invoked his right to counsel, and it can be shown that the evidence was obtained through impermissible questioning designed to undermine the suspect's Miranda rights, the evidence can only be admissible if it is shown that curative measures were taken to ensure that a reasonable person in the suspect's situation would understand the effect of his answering questions after he has invoked his right to counsel and that his doing so was voluntary, unquote, if you're still with me. In support of his proposal, the defendant asserted that the conduct of the police revealed an intent to undermine his invocation of rights and to trick him into telling them where they could find his cell phone. In other words, water is still wet. However, this court found that the record does not support this contention. And to the contrary, it found that Detective Perone had intended to seize the cell because there was no there was evidence that it, it had been used prior to and after the death of the victim. 
and because he wanted to ensure that no evidence was lost. Moreover, this court found that the rule is not required by our state constitution. In some instances, our state constitution may afford more protection than the federal constitution. However, before determining whether to provide this extra protection, the court must employ a multi-factor approach. State versus Geisler, 222 Connecticut 672. The factors that the court will consider are, one, the text of the relevant constitutional provisions, two, related Connecticut precedent, three, persuasive federal precedent, four, persuasive precedent of other state courts, five, historical insights into the intent of the constitutional framers, and six, contemporary understandings of applicable economic and sociological norms, otherwise described as public policies. The court basically tells the defendant on appeal here, you didn't brief this issue well enough for us and declined to adopt this prophylactic rule. The next claim here is that the police seized his cell phone in violation of the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution and Article 1st, Section 7 of our state constitution, and therefore the court should have suppressed the evidence obtained from the phone as fruit of the poisonous tree. Specifically, he claims that the police did not have probable cause to seize his cell phone at the police station and maintains that his cell phone and the contents therein should have been excluded from evidence. The state counters that the court properly determined that probable cause existed at the time of the seizure. The following facts are relevant to this second Fourth Amendment claim. On January 16th, 2018, there was a motion to suppress filed, as we've discussed, and the defendant argued that the police had seized his cell phone on April 15th, 2015, without probable cause. He claimed that there was no nexus linking the phone to any criminal behavior. He further argued that even if probable cause existed, the exigent circumstances doctrine did not justify the immediate seizure at the police station. In denying this motion, the trial court concluded that the police were justified in seizing the cell phone under the exigent circumstances and inevitable discovery doctrines. Additionally, the trial court concluded that the police had probable cause to seize the phone due to Perone's testimony that based on his experience, co-conspirators often use cell phones after criminal activity to, to, to communicate. And further, he had received information that either the defendant or the co-conspirator had communicated with a third person via cell phone at the time of the crime. And that phones typically contain GPS coordinates. The trial court then turned to the exigent circumstances doctrine and concluded that Perone had seized the phone to prevent him from leaving the station with it, him being sales, at which point it could have been destroyed and or evidence discarded. So what is our standard of review on appeal? Ordinary standard is the police may not search unless they first obtain a search warrant from a neutral magistrate after establishing probable cause. Under both the state and federal constitutions, a warrantless search and seizure are per se unreasonable under the Fourth Amendment, subject to a few exceptions. The burden is on the state to establish that exception. Citation for that is State v. Ortiz, 182 Connecticut Appellate 580. Our Supreme Court has explained that the Fourth Amendment proscribes only unreasonable searches and seizures. And there will be occasions when, given the probable cause to search, resort to judicial processes will not be required of law enforcement officers. Thus, when exigent circumstances exist that make procurement of a search warrant unreasonable in light of the damages involved, a warrant will not be required. Your citation for that 
is State versus Spencer, 268 Connecticut 575. The exigent circumstances doctrine requires support by a reasonable belief that immediate action was necessary. This doctrine has been recognized as, as something of a catch-all, as it does not lend itself to a precise definition. The exception generally refers to those situations in which law enforcement agents will be unable or unlikely to effectuate an arrest, search, or seizure for which probable cause exists unless they act swiftly and without seeking judicial authorization. There are three categories of exigent circumstances that present a danger to human life. That's one. The destruction of evidence. That's two. Or the flight of a suspect. That's three. The doctrine is limited to instances in which the police initially have probable cause to either search or arrest. Our Supreme Court has adopted a totality of the circumstances test to evaluate whether the exigency exists. The test inquires whether, under the totality of the circumstances, the police had reasonable grounds to believe that if an immediate arrest or entry were not made, the accused would have been able to destroy evidence, flee, or might, during the time necessary to get the warrant, endanger the safety or property of others. It's an objective test, focuses on what a reasonable, well-trained police officer would believe, not what the officer did in fact believe. Moreover, the test requires reasonable belief, not a level of certainty approaching probable cause. However, when there are reasonable alternatives to a warrantless search, the state does not satisfy its burden. Moreover, the reasonableness must embody allowance for the fact that police officers are often forced to make split-second decisions in tense circumstances that are rapidly evolving. Thus, the existence of probable cause serves as a necessary prerequisite for the applicability of this doctrine. Whether the trial court properly found that the fact supported a finding of probable cause is a question of law, plenary review on appeal, it's comprised of facts as would reasonably persuade an impartial and reasonable mind not to merely suspect or conjecture, but to believe that criminal activity had occurred. Reasonable minds may disagree. The evidence necessary to establish probable cause exceeds mere suspicion, but is substantially less than is required for conviction. The determination is a technical one, but is informed by the factual and practical considerations of everyday life, and thus cannot be reduced to neat legal rules. That is a lot to excuse potential police misconduct, is it not? Let's go to what the court says in its analysis. At the January 24th, 2018 hearing on the motion to suppress, Detective Perone testified that he had taken a statement from Leighton Vanderberg, learning that Vanderberg had driven the defendant and somewhere on the day of the shooting that Vanderberg had contacted the defendant by cell phone, and during his interview, he provided the detective with the defendant's and Sumler's numbers. Additionally, Perone testified that when he interviewed the defendant, he observed him holding a cell phone and handing it to his mother. Lastly, he stated that he believed that in his experience, if he didn't get that phone from mom, the evidence would have been lost. And thus, if he would have tried to get a warrant, it's likely the evidence would have been destroyed. The next day, after seizing the cell phone, he got the warrant, he searched the phone. Perone conceded on cross-examination that Vanderberg never specifically said that the defendant's cell phone had been used to make a call. Rather, he only believed that it was Sumler or the defendant's phone. However, Perone further testified that he had reason to believe that the defendant and his co-conspirator co -conspirator, excuse me, were communicating 
on Facebook Messenger via their cell phones. The defendant urges that all the information that Perone received, namely the information regarding Facebook messaging, was all based on information he obtained after he seized the phone. However, the court finds that the trial court's determination regarding probable cause did not rest solely on the use of Facebook. The trial court had evidence on the record to indicate that Perone had information regarding the defendant's involvement with the murder and that one of them had communicated with Mr. Vanderberg. Combined with that knowledge and the finding that Perone's expertise led him to believe that criminal actors often communicate over cell phone and that this phone may have evidence linking the defendant to the scene of the crime supports a finding of probable cause. The defendant also argues that the police should have not relied on Vanderberg's statement as it was self-serving, unreliable, and because he was operating under cooperation agreements with the state. Therefore, it follows that his statements should not have been considered trustworthy or enough to establish probable cause. However, our Supreme Court has recognized that facts that the police obtained from an informant can be significant in a credibility determination as the informant runs the greater risk that he may be held accountable if his information proves to be false. State versus Flores, 319 Connecticut, 218. Moreover, Vandenberg had made statements against his penal interest, which our Supreme Court has noted carry their own indicia of credibility, sufficient to at least support a finding of probable cause. So accordingly, the court finds that the defendant's argument regarding Vandenberg's credibility is without merit, and the trial court properly denied the motion to suppress seizure of his cell phone and the evidence obtained as a result of that seizure. So in conclusion, the defendant's claims fail because Miranda does not require suppression of physical evidence under the fruit of the poisonous tree analysis. And further, detectives had probable cause to seize Mr. Sale's cell phone at the time it was taken. Bringing us to our next case, Collins versus Commissioner of Corrections. It's our first habeas case today. Your citation is AC 43500. From one legendary Bridgeport judge to the next, Judge Devlin. Officially released on February 23rd, 2021. Here are your facts. It's March of 2009. Robert Dixon, the victim, resided in Hartford with his girlfriend, and he always carried two cell phones. He used one cell phone to sell drugs and the other for more personal matters, as the court says here. In addition, he always wore an expensive pair of Cartier glasses. He stored the drugs at a remote location secured in a safe, and the key to the safe was kept on the same ring as his car keys. On March 9th, 2009, Dixon spoke on the phone with Adrian Dean, a friend of the petitioner, multiple times. At approximately 9.25 p.m. that evening, Mr. Dixon left to meet Dean, carrying his cell phone and those Cartier glasses. Once the two met up, Dean called the petitioner. Dean arranged for the petitioner to meet them at an agreed-upon place, which led them to a cul-de-sac at the end of a road. Both the petitioner and Dean exited their vehicles, and Dean approached Mr. Dixon's driver's side window and shot Dixon in the head. Dean then asked the petitioner to search Dixon's pockets, when the petitioner began to do so, Dixon flinched and attempted to escape through the passenger side door. Dixon was then shot seven times as he tried to escape and died from the multiple gunshot wounds. The following morning, Dixon was found by two fishermen. His two cell phones, Cartier glasses, and keys were missing. The petitioner was arrested on March 24, charged with murder, 
conspiracy to commit the same, robbery one, and conspiracy to commit that. The jury found him guilty of felony murder and robbery in the first degree. He was sentenced to 45 years. Appeal affirmed the trial court's judgment on March 23, 2015. He was self-represented and filed for a writ of habeas corpus. He amended the petition with the assistance of counsel on Valentine's Day 2018. The second writ contained two claims relevant to this appeal. First, he alleged that his trial counsel, attorney Aaron Romano, what's up, Aaron, had a conflict of interest, oh boy, and thus rendered ineffective assistance. Second, he alleged that attorney Romano was ineffective for failing to investigate and present potentially exculpatory witness to the robbery and that such failure materially prejudiced the petitioner's case. On December 28, 2018, the habeas court denied all claims. Specifically as to the first count, habeas court concluded that the petitioner's claim was procedurally defaulted and even if it weren't, he failed to demonstrate the conflict of interest. As to the second claim, the court agreed with the petitioner that Romano was ineffective in not investigating the witness but also found that it would be too speculative to assess whether the absence of the witness's testimony at the criminal trial inured to the petitioner's prejudice. Interesting background here, the standard of review. The habeas court has afforded broad discretion in making factual findings, and those findings are not to be disturbed unless they are clearly erroneous. The habeas judge is the trier of fact, is the sole arbiter of credibility of witnesses, and the weight given to their testimony. The application of the habeas court's factual findings to the pertinent legal standard, however, is a mixed question of law and fact, which is subject to plenary review. The citation is Gaines versus the Commissioner of Correction, 306 Connecticut 664. Our first claim, procedural default of the conflict of interest. Petitioner first claims that the habeas court erred in concluding that his conflict of interest claim was procedurally defaulted. Here are the facts relevant to this claim. The petitioner was initially found to be indigent. He had a special public defender appointed to him after he was arrested. Later, the family retained Aaron Romano to represent him instead of the public defender. The petitioner's father signed a representation agreement and agreed to pay 25K retainer, which included the trial fee, and agreed to pay extra costs as needed. On March 20th, 2010, Romano filed a motion for expenses, arguing that the petitioner was indigent that a state funding of expert witnesses was necessary. That's Ake versus Oklahoma, 470 U.S. 68, well-known case. Specifically, Romano needed a ballistic expert, a cell phone expert, a psychologist, and an independent medical examiner to determine the trajectory of the bullets. Ultimately, the court, Judge Malarkey, denied the request for expenses, concluding that Romano failed to make a sufficiently particularized showing for the need and that the petitioner's indigency was voluntary. The court pointed to the representation agreement where the petitioner's family had agreed to pay for additional costs as part of the reason why it found that the petitioner was voluntarily indigent. However, before adjourning, the court specifically instructed the petitioner that the state would pay for all experts that the chief public defender's office determines are necessary if he was represented by a public defender. Again, on January 19, 2011, Romano filed an amended motion for expenses, again arguing that the petitioner was indigent and that those experts were necessary. The court 
Espinoza denied the motion, citing the same reason, reasoning as the previous court, and stated that the petitioner rejected public services by retaining private counsel. The court also recommended that Romano consider spending a portion of the fee that he received on experts and seek reimbursement later, pursuant to the retainer agreement. God forbid. On February 8, 2011, the petitioner moved to suppress the statement made to the police, arguing that the statements were involuntary and obtained as the result of an arrest made without probable cause. Romano presented no expert testimony to support this argument, nor did he argue that the petitioner's deficiencies affected the voluntariness of his statements. The court denied the motion. The introduction of evidence began on March 15, 2011, and Romano did not present any expert witnesses at trial. Now, let's talk about procedural default. Under that doctrine, a petitioner may not raise in a collateral proceeding claims that he would have made at trial or on direct appeal in the original proceeding unless he can prove that his default by failure to do so should be excused. If the state alleges that the petitioner should be procedurally defaulted from making a claim, the petitioner bears the burden of demonstrating good cause for that failure, and he must show that he suffered actual prejudice as a result. This doctrine, however, is limited to claims that could have been raised at the trial level. Conflict of interest claims are a species of ineffective assistance of counsel claims. See Santiago versus Commissioner of Correction, 87 Connecticut Appellate, 568. Our Supreme Court has explained that ineffective assistance of counsel claims are generally more appropriately resolved on collateral review, like a habeas case, rather than by direct appeal because of the need for a full evidentiary record for such a claim. On rare occasions, the court will address ineffective assistance on direct appeal. However, the court's review will be limited to allegations that the defendant's Sixth Amendment right had been jeopardized by the trial court rather than those by his counsel. Additionally, such claims will be limited to questions of law, not one fact requiring further evidentiary development. Additionally, in a case called State versus Navarro, 172 Connecticut Appellate 472, this court examined the conflict of interest claim. In declining to review the claim on direct appeal, the appellate court stated that the defendant's claim should be resolved after an evidentiary hearing on, in the trial court where the attorney whose conduct was in question could have an opportunity to testify. In this case, Attorney Romano never raised the potential for a conflict of interest with the court nor did the court raise the issue on its own. Therefore, it was not until the habeas trial itself that Romano explained on the record specifically why he declined to pay for experts using the retainer. It follows that there is no reason to depart from the Supreme Court's guidance that ineffective assistance of counsel claims are more appropriately resolved in collateral review. Therefore, as a preliminary matter, the petitioner's claim is not subject to procedural default and the court declines to apply that cause and prejudice test as the record was not adequate to review the claim. So let's get to the meat and potatoes here. Having concluded that the claim is not subject to procedural default, the court next turns to the argument that Romano had an actual conflict of interest. The petitioner believes that Romano had a personal financial incentive not to retain and present the testimony of the expert witness once the court denied his motion for state funding. Where Sixth Amendment right to effective counsel exists, there is a correlative right that this representation is free of conflicts of interest. In a case of claimed conflict of interest, the 
Petitioner must establish that one, counsel actively represented conflicting interests, and two, that there was an actual conflict of interest adversely affected his lawyer's performance. Where there is an actual conflict of interest, prejudice is presumed because counsel has breached their duty of loyalty. An actual conflict of interest is more than a theoretical conflict. The United States Supreme Court has cautioned that the possibility of conflict is insufficient to impugn a criminal conviction. To demonstrate an actual conflict of interest, the petitioner must point to specific instances in the record which suggest impairment or compromise of his interest for the benefit of another party. Court cites Kyler v. Sullivan, 446 U.S. 335. Amount to an actual conflict of interest is a question of law. Plenary review here. The petitioner contends that Romano's representation was materially limited and therefore a breach of his fiduciary duty of loyalty because he had a financial interest in not presenting the testimony of these experts because he would have had to use his retainer fee to pay for them. It's a pretty basic idea here. Concluding that counsel's financial interests were inconsistent with the petitioner's interest in mounting a defense to these serious charges. However, there is no support in federal or state case law that supports the contention that counsel's failure to apply funds from a retainer agreement and hire expert witnesses presents a conflict of interest. In fact, this court has previously held in Grover versus Commissioner of Correction that no conflict of interest exists when counsel had a financial incentive to convince the petitioner to accept a plea rather than proceed to trial. The appellate court accredited the habeas court finding that while counsel was disappointed that the retainer had not been paid in full, his professional reputation had a value above all else. Moreover, this court had also concluded that a $300,000 retainer for the entire representation, without regard to whether the case was resolved at trial or in a plea agreement, does not represent an actual conflict of interest. That's Scheffelbein versus Commissioner of Correction. I don't know who the lawyer was in that case, but God bless you. Additionally, federal courts have rejected conflict of interest claims arising from fee agreements similar to the one here. In Williams versus Vasquez, that's a California district court case, the petitioner claimed that his trial counsel had a conflict because he was placed in a position where he personally had to pay for ancillary defense services or forego the use of such services entirely. That court found counsel's failure to financially support the defense doesn't constitute a violation of his duty of loyalty or the petitioner's Sixth Amendment right, as the attorney is under no obligation to do so. Moreover, in Bonin v. Calderon in the Ninth Circuit, they considered a habeas petitioner's claim that trial counsel had a conflict of interest because he was forced to pay for experts out of pocket due, due private counsel depriving the petitioner of state-funded investigators. However, the court found that this conflict is the same theoretical one that exists in any pro bono or underfunded appointment case, and such arrangements don't typically create actual conflicts. Similarly, in United States versus Stitt out of the Fourth Circuit, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fourth Circuit found that a fee agreement where counsel paid a flat fee and must seek additional costs and expenses from the petitioner's family doesn't represent a conflict either. The site for that case is 552 F.3D345. Here, the petitioner asserts that his case is distinguishable in that the fee agreement allowed Romano to advance the funds for experts. 
and then pursue legal action against the petitioner's family for reimbursement. However, the court note noted that the fact that there might be a theoretical path to reimbursement does not create a conflict of interest where otherwise one doesn't exist. The cases cited here represent the proposition that trial counsel has no obligation to finance a defendant's litigation costs and therefore is under no obligation to put counsel's private money at the defendant's disposal. Advancing funds for experts amounts to exactly that. I got to tell you, I, I agree with this decision wholeheartedly, not just because it makes financial sense, but because it makes common sense, makes legal sense. Look, I know most of the people listening, of course, there are a few hacks out there that just cannot do a good job for their clients, but most of y'all take your oath very, very seriously. And just because you're not reaching into your own pocket to advance the funds of certain uh, litigation choices, doesn't create a conflict of interest. The interest is still still to win and defend the rights of the person who has entrusted you to do so. Shout out to Collins. I think it's the right decision. And that brings us to our last case for this week. Godfrey versus Commissioner of Correction, AC 42890. Judge Prescott officially released February 23rd, 2021. Here are your facts. The petitioner appeals from the judgment of the habeas court denying his petition for the writ of habeas corpus. On November 9th, 2001, the East Hartford police respond to an apartment complex on the report that a woman was found dead. When they arrived, they entered the apartment 209. They observed the woman's naked body lying face down next to a bed with a large open wound to the back of her head. Large amounts of blood on the walls, the bed, the floors of the apartment. In the kitchen, there appeared to be bloody footprints that led outside apartment 209 and to the outer staircase to the door of apartment 309. This apartment is where the petitioner lived. When he was interviewed by police, he affirmed that he knew the victim, had a few beers with her, but could not explain why the bloody footprints led to his apartment. He consented to a DNA sample. The sample matched semen found in the victim. The cause of the victim's death was Cranial cerebral trauma caused by 10 to 15 blows from a SARP object. The police obtained a warrant for the defendant's home. They found bloody footprints inside, later determined to match the petitioner's and clothes stained from the victim or with the victim's blood. On November 27th, he was charged with a capital felony, murder, two counts of burglary, two counts of sexual assault. In the first degree, he entered a plea agreement with the state. The state amended the charge to one count of murder. He pled guilty in exchange for a 60 year sentence. On March 11, 2004, during a canvas with the court, determined that the petitioner understood that one, the guilty plea was, quote, for keeps, unquote, meaning that he would not be permitted to change his mind and take it back. Two, he cannot withdraw his guilty plea unless the court doesn't impose the agreed upon sentence. And three, or three, he was giving up any rights to appeal, and four, the sentencing statute required that he serve the 60 years day for day. Additionally, the court found that there was a factual basis for the plea and that the plea was made knowingly and voluntarily. On April 25th, 2012, uh, number 12-5 of the 2012 Public Acts was signed into law repealing the death penalty for all crimes committed on or after that date, retaining the death penalty for capital felonies committed before that date. Three years later, 
Our Supreme Court in State v. Santiago held that the imposition of the death penalty on offenders who committed capital crimes before the enactment of that public act would violate the Constitution and effectively abolished the death penalty here in Connecticut. Following that decision, our petitioner, Mr. Godfrey, filed a writ of habeas corpus. On April 17, 2018, he amended that petition, alleging ineffective assistance of trial counsel and that his guilty plea should be vacated pursuant to the doctrine of frustration of purpose because the abolishment of the death penalty frustrated his principal purpose in accepting the plea agreement to avoid the death penalty. The petitioner sought judgment vacating the original plea agreement and remanding of his case for sentencing in accordance with a plea that would have made that would have been made had the death penalty not been available. The respondent filed a return asserting that the petitioner failed to state a ground on which relief could be granted, raising the defense of procedural default as well. At the habeas trial on September 4, 2018, the petitioner withdrew his ineffective assistance of counsel claim, and three witnesses, including the petitioner and his trial counsel, testified as to his second claim. Both trial counsels testified that he recommended that the petitioner plead guilty to avoid the likelihood of the death penalty due to the horrific nature of the crime and lack of mitigating factors. Attorney Barry Butler testified that he believed that the 60-year sentence was more favorable than a life sentence without the possibility of parole, as the defendant may be eligible for early release. Butler further testified that he believed that the death penalty may be revoked in the future, but he didn't know when or if. The petitioner testified that avoiding the death penalty was somewhat important, and he alleged that he would not have taken the 60-year term had the death penalty been unavailable. He further testified that he did not want to plead guilty to sexual assault, and it was a deal-breaker for him. This was confirmed by Butler's testimony. On March 8, 2019, the habeas court denied the petition, concluding that the petitioner failed to show under the frustration of purpose doctrine, which can apply to plea agreements, that his principal purpose for entering the agreement was frustrated and that he did not assume the risk that the death penalty may be abolished. He was granted certification to appeal, and here we are. Here's our standard of review. It is well settled that the principles of contract law and special due process concerns for fairness govern this court's interpretation of plea agreements. The primary goal of contract interpretation is to effectuate the intent of the parties. In ascertaining that intent, this court will employ an objective standard and look to what the parties reasonably understood to be the terms of the plea agreement based on their words and conduct and in light of the circumstances surrounding the making of the agreement and the purposes they sought to accomplish. The threshold determination as to whether a plea agreement is ambiguous as to the party's intent is a question of law, plenary review. It's the case, State v. Kahlberg, 326 Connecticut 1. I know Kahlberg very well. It helped me with one of my habeas wins. It was a pivotal case. I suggest you read Kahlberg if you haven't. Uh, especially for the principles it advances and makes clear with respect to the benefit of the bargain in plea agreements. The frustration of purpose doctrine excuses a promissor in certain situations where the objectives of the contract have been utterly defeated by circumstances arising after the formation of the agreement. The moving party has the burden of demonstrating that one, the event substantially frustrated his principal purpose, Two, the non-occurrence of the supervening event was a basic assumption on which the contract was made. 
Three, the frustration resulted without the fault of the party seeking to be excused. And four, the party has not assumed a greater obligation than the law imposes. Court cites for that Howard Arnold Incorporated versus TNT Realty Incorporated, 315 Connecticut 596. Moreover, this defense requires convincing proof of a changed situation so severe that it is not fairly regarded as being within the risks assumed in the contract. The purpose of this doctrine is to na- is narrowed to preserve the certainty of contracts. The habeas judge is the sole arbiter of the credibility of witnesses and the weight to be given their testimony. This court may not disturb the underlying facts found by the habeas court unless they are erroneous. The application of the court's factual findings to the legal standard is a mixed question of law and fact. Plenary review. The question of the frustration of purpose is a question of law to be determined by the court from the facts in this case. So let's go to the claim. The petitioner claims that the habeas court properly determined that the frustration of purpose doctrine applies to plea agreements, but improperly concluded that he was not entitled to habeas relief because, one, he failed to prove that his principal purpose for entering into the plea was substantially frustrated by the subsequent abolition, excuse me, the death penalty, and two, he had assumed the risk that the law might change in his favor. In response, the respondent argues that the court need not decide whether the frustration of purpose doctrine applies to plea plea agreements in general or in all circumstances because even assuming arguendo that it does apply, the petitioner has failed to satisfy all four factors for its applicability. So here's where the court falls down. The appellate court need not determine whether the purpose doctrine applies to plea agreements in Connecticut, because even if it does, the petitioner would not be entitled to relief under that doctrine. Accepting a plea agreement allows contract principles to dictate that the petitioner assume the risk at some point the death penalty could be abolished. Here, it is clear that the terms of the agreement were unambiguous and that the petitioner was fully aware of the consequences of this bargain. He knew what he was gaining and he knew what he was giving up. Petitioner understood that he was agreeing to the certainty of 60 years as opposed to standing trial for a capital felony murder, burglary in the first degree, sexual assault in the first degree, and was facing a potential life sentence or even death. Attorney Butler advised the petitioner of the preference for that 60-year deal, and likewise the possibility that the death penalty may be abolished in the future. Moreover, both trial attorneys advised the petitioner of the likelihood that the jury would convict him and sentence him to death. With this knowledge, the petitioner elected to limit his criminal exposure and forego a lengthy capital trial in favor of that 60-year sentence, which left open the option for early release or release at 90 years old. Additionally, the petitioner was asked by the trial court whether he understood the conditions of his agreement, to which the petitioner responded that he did, after having been made aware of the potential for future favorable changes in the law. Accordingly, because the petitioner was advised of the risks of his agreement, the fact that one of those risks came to fruition is not a change so severe that it is unfair to regard it as being within the risks assumed under the contract. Court here cites American jurisprudence, the treatise from law school, as I like to call it. Moreover, the abolishment of the death penalty did not change the petitioner's expectations under the agreement, namely that he serve a full 60-year sentence and not be permitted to withdraw his guilty plea after the court imposed the agreed-upon sentence. Although the law changed after the defendant pled guilty, his expectations did not. 
plea agreement, like any contract, allocates risk and the possibility of a favorable change in the law occurring after a plea is one of the normal risks that accompany a guilty plea. Having voluntarily, knowingly bargained for a decrease in the number of counts charged against him and for a decreased sentence, the petitioner cannot now extract two components of that bargain based on the changes of the law after that bargain was struck. As stated by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, contract principles simply do not support the petitioner's attempt to have his cake and eat it too. The court got into some policy rationale as well. The court's conclusion that the petitioner's guilty plea cannot be withdrawn pursuant to the frustration of purpose doctrine is betrayed by fundamental fairness and our Supreme Court's refusal to adopt the amelioration doctrine. Our habeas court's statute 52-470 subsection A requires that the court or judge hearing any habeas corpus shall dispose of the case as law and justice requires. Here, if the court were to hold that the petitioner is entitled to vacate his plea agreement, it would work substantial injustice on the state. That is, the case would be returned to the criminal trial court for plea negotiations where the defendant would enjoy a much greater degree of leverage due to the passing 20 years since the crime was committed, which leads to stale evidence, witnesses being unavailable. Such fundamental unfairness requires this court to leave undisturbed the party's original allocation of risk in the plea agreement and to require the petitioner to perform his obligations accordingly. The amelioration doctrine provides that amendments to statute that lessens their penalties are applied retroactively. However, our Supreme Court has consistently refused to adopt the amelioration doctrine in regards to criminal charges. Therefore, it would be improper to vacate the guilty plea pursuant to frustration of purpose in this instance where it would accomplish the same objective. Our Supreme Court discussed the doctrine and declined to adopt it, stating, quote, in criminal cases, we have generally applied the law in existence on the date of the offense. This principle is derived from the legislature's enactment of saving statutes, which provide that the repeal of any statute defining or prescribing the punishment for any crime shall not affect any pending prosecution or any existing liability to prosecution and punishment, citing State v. Khalil, 314 Connecticut 529. By holding that the petitioner cannot withdraw his guilty plea, this court of, is effectively requiring adherence to the law that was in existence on the date of the offense, meaning that to allow the petitioner to be resentenced in accordance with the plea that would have been negotiated if the death penalty was not available would be the equivalent of applying the amelioration doctrine. And because our Supreme Court has unequivocally rejected that doctrine, it is likewise proper for this court to decline the petitioner's invitation to reach the same result by virtue of the frustration of purpose doctrine. So in conclusion, that doctrine is not only inapplicable in this context, the defendant regardless would not have satisfied the two-pronged test. I agree with this opinion. I thought it was the right decision, and I also thought it was a very nice opinion written by Judge Devlin. That does it for the Connecticut Case Law Podcast this week. Dan Lage here. Like I am every week, except when I'm taking a week off, giving you the latest in criminal law, the latest in habeas court law from the appellate court, from the Supreme Court, 
reading the cases so that you don't have to. I'll check back in next week. See you then. Next up, injury law cases. If you know someone who has been injured, Connecticut Trial Firm can help. Our lawyers handle car accidents, malpractice, dog bite, and premises liability cases across the state of Connecticut. Our lawyers have achieved multi-million dollar verdicts and settlements. Our trial team has the experience and the resources to make a difference. Connecticut trial firm attorneys are always available to consult with fellow attorneys on injury law issues at any time. Put the power of over 124 five-star reviews to work for your personal injury referrals by trusting the team at Connecticut trial firm. Visit cttrialfirm.com for more information or call us 24-7 at 860-471-8333. Next up, family law cases. Hi, it's Connecticut personal injury attorney Ryan McKean here from Connecticut Trial Firm. And the bad news is this week, there were no Connecticut tort law decisions rendered by either the Connecticut Supreme or Appellate Court. The good news is, I'm giving away a copy of my new Connecticut tort law book, which covers every Supreme and Appellate Court tort law decision from 2017 through June of 2020. And you can get that by going to my website, cttrialfirm.com slash Connecticut hyphen tort hyphen law. Again, that's cttrialfirm.com slash Connecticut hyphen tort hyphen law. I'll be giving away one copy of my book to a lucky listener. First come, first serve. Uh, Can't wait to send it to you. Hope you have a great week. If you know someone who needs the advice of a lawyer who focuses exclusively on divorce and other family matters, Rich Rockland is your guy. Rich handles cases all across the state of Connecticut, including the state appellate court, and welcomes your referrals. Rich will personally handle the case and will be attentive to all your clients' needs. Family litigation is stressful, and you don't need your referral stress being taken out on you. Rich's goal is to counsel his clients through a family law case with an eye towards resolving the issue in a manner that protects their interests while minimizing their stress and yours. If you would like to discuss a referral of a family law matter, please contact us at 860-357-9158. We have virtual consults available and in-person consults in West Hartford Center and welcome the call from fellow attorneys. Hello everyone, it's Rich Rockman. Um, this is the case of Fronsaglia versus Fronsaglia. Bishop AC42684, Appellate Court Opinion, published February 23rd, 2021, argued back in October of 2020. This case is regarding the divorce of the solution proceeding and the amount of alimony that should or should not have been awarded to the plaintiff wife. Some background for you. The defendant, uh, Benigno Fronsaglia, appeals from the judgment dissolving his marriage to the plaintiff Lisa, same last name. They were married back in 92. They have two children. Uh, one uh, was a minor at the time of uh, the divorce. In 2016, um, the uh, wife filed for divorce on the grounds that it had been broken down irretrievably without the prospect of reconciliation. 
She sought legal and primary physical custody of the minor child, equitable distribution of all marital debts and assets, and orders for payment of alimony, child support, post-secondary education, and attorney's fees. At the time of the dissolution, um, the plaintiff worked as a registered nurse. She was 52, and the defendant, who was 54, was working as a self-employed businessman importing and selling furniture through his LLC, Meeting International. Um, during the pendency of the divorce, the court ordered the parties um, uh, entered a stipulation in which the defendant agreed to pay the mortgage for the family home, cell phone bills, car insurance, homeowners insurance, and other household bills. In November of 2018, after a trial, the court issued a ruling dissolving the marriage and issued financial orders. The court find the plaintiffs, found that the plaintiff's gross income to be $115,000 a year and the defendant's to be $160,000 a year. During the PL period, the defendant terminated his association with another furniture company he had been doing business with for many years. In doing so, the defendant sold 12.5% interest in the company for $550,000 without the court's permission and without informing the plaintiff. He disclosed that he had depleted the entire $550,000 pendente lite and had also invested in a restaurant pendente lite in violation of the automatic orders. The defendant did not file his tax returns for the two years before the dissolution action. The court found that this was intentional. The court further found that the defendant had commingled his business and personal finance such that no one could attest to his income. The only way for the court to discern his income was by looking at the statements the defendant had submitted for evidence, his bank account, credit card records, email exchanges between himself the company he terminated association with, the court's prior determination regarding payment for household bills, and testimony from a former employee. The defendant also submitted financial affidavits to the court, which listed his weekly net income expenses, liabilities, total cash assets, and liabilities. Based on the evidence presented uh, by, uh, by the defendant, the court found that the defendant's annual income was between 150 and 175 and his gross income for 2018 was 160 the court then awarded plaintiff alimony for 20 years, non-modifiable, 1500 a month, an amount that was non-modifiable for the first five years. The court assigns any, assigned any debts arising from the defendant's business ventures to the defendant, including tax liabilities and obligations. The defendant retained his interest in his companies and any interest in his mother's home. The plaintiff was ordered to pay all of the debts that she had incurred. The court awarded the family home to the plaintiff and found that it had a value of 447 with 127000 remaining on the mortgage, and liens on the home in the amount of $203,000 due to the defendant's choice of using the home as collateral for his business loans. Consequently, there was only $147,000 of equity in the home. The court further found that in the event that the plaintiff was to sell the home, the defendant would be obligated to pay the plaintiff the amount sufficient to pay off any liens. In the event um, the defendant was not able to do this, he would be obligated to pay $18,000 a year until the full amount of the liens were paid off. Additionally, the defendant was ordered to pay $18,000 pay $18, payments in order to reimburse the plaintiff for any sale proceeds that would have been used to pay the liens before the sale of the home, thereby reducing the number of encumbrances of the property. If the defendant were to procure releases, reductions of the liens before any sale, that the court would reduce the total amount to the plaintiff. The court lastly ordered that the defendant continue to seek releases of the business debts after the dissolution to clear the home title. On November 26, 2018, the defendant filed a post-judgment motion for articulation as to the court's factual basis for its finding as to gross income, net income, and the basis for the distribution of the party's assets and debts. The court granted the motion in regards to the splitting of assets, noted consideration of the $550,000 that he had obtained and spent in concealment. In doing so, the court sought to ensure equal distribution of assets. Regarding the party's debts, the court clarified that it took into consideration that the defendant had frivolously spent money during the pendente liti period in violation of the automatic orders and found that the defendant 
continued to accumulate credit card debt while failing to pay household bills and the mortgage as required, and the debts incurred through his investment in a restaurant. The defendant's representations of financial status were given little weight due to the defendant's continuous misrepresentations. The defendant was assigned the debts related to the many failed business ventures that he had undertaken without the plaintiff's knowledge. The standard of review. Regarding the review of a court's decision regarding financial orders and a dissolution, this court will review this court reviews financial awards under an abuse of discretion standard. To conclude that a trial court abuses discretion, this court must find that either the court incorrectly applied the law or could not reasonably conclude that it did. Great weight is, give, is due to the action of the trial court, and every reasonable presumption of correctness should be granted. This standard reflects the strong policy in favor of the trial court's unique opportunity to view the parties and its ability to assess the circumstances, including the demeanor and attitudes of the party. First argument, the defendant claims that the trial court abused its discretion by making a grossly disproportionate property distribution in the plaintiff's favor and assigning the majority of the marital debt to the defendant. He argues that awarding the plaintiff $331,000 in assets while awarding him $53,000 was an abuse of discretion and posits that the court's financial award will essentially force him into financial poverty. Generally, the court will not overturn the trial court's division of marital property unless it misapplies, overlooks, or gives a wrong improper effect to any test or consideration which it is duty to regard. That's under 46B581, which governs the distribution of assets in dissolution and authorizes the court to assign either spouse all or any part of the estate of the other spouse. The court shall also consider the contribution of each of the parties in the acquisition, preservation, and appreciation of the value of their respective estates. There is no set formula the court is obligated to apply when dividing assets, and it has broad discretion in fashioning orders. Here, the court found that the defendant received approximately $550,000 over the course of a few months during the PL period. It determined that this sum was a marital asset subject to vision by the court because they were earned entirely during the marriage. Namely, the court found that the defendant had misappropriated the sum and only later revealed that he had spent the entire sum. Moreover, the defendant spent all his money on his own needs and did not attempt to pay off any of the family debts, for example, the liens on the family home. In essence, the court found that the defendant dissipated a marital asset. Dissipation in the marital dissolution context requires financial misconduct such as intentional waste or selfish financial impropriety coupled with a purpose unrelated to the marriage. The trial court found, and this court agrees, that the payment should have been held secure and instead the defendant spent the entire sum in violation of the automatic orders. Despite the defendant's contention that the $550,000 was not part of the marital estate, the court's power to act equitably is the keystone of its ability to fashion relief in the infinite variety of circumstances that arise during a dissolution. Accordingly, the trial court had wide discretion to divide the sum as it deemed fit. Additionally, our Supreme Court has established that a trial court can consider the dissipation of assets when fashioning alimony orders in a dissolution action. See O'Brien versus O'Brien. Moreover, the trial court determined that the defendant was not a credible witness. Therefore, this court, the appellate court, could not say on appeal whether the court inaccurately determined that the defendant dissipated the $550,000 or the record shows that he made expensive purchases and supported his paramours financially while the mortgage on the family home went unpaid and one of the children's cars was repossessed in violation of the pendente lite orders. In Greco, Connecticut Supreme Court concluded that the trial court abused its discretion in awarding the plaintiff more than 98% of the marital property, alimony, and attorney's fees because the financial award exceeded the defendant's income. Contrastingly here, the defendant misappropriated and dissipated a marital asset for his benefit in violation of the automatic orders and the pendente lite orders. The defendant fails to account for the fact that the debts appointed to him included business obligation debts that he solely accumulated throughout the marriage without knowledge of the 
plaintiff and over which she had no control. Consequently, this court finds that the trial court did not abuse its discretion as the distribution was not grossly disproportionate. Um, where the court found that the defendant dissipated $550,000 of marital assets. The court merely reattributed these assets to the defendant as the law permits. The second claim was that the court erred in when it found that it had actual earned income or an earning capacity of $160,000 per year because there was no evidence to support such a finding. The court first notes that the defendant seemed to have conflated his earning capacity with actual earnings, and the transcript shows that the court determined his actual earnings not his earning capacity. Thus, because the court's orders were based on the defendant's actual earnings and not his earning capacity, the court must determine whether there is evidence from which the trial court could have determined the defendant's actual earnings. The trial court considered the defendant's past earnings and his spending history. Specifically, due to the defendant's lack of candor, the court looked to documents submitted, liabilities, bank accounts, credit card statements, and email correspondence between the defendant and his potential employer. The defendant relies on Kush v. Kush to make his argument. Kush, the court held that the trial court abused its discretion when it calculated child support based on the defendant's earning capacity rather than actual earnings without first stating the presumptive support amount at which it arrived by applying the guidelines and using the parent's actual income and finding application of the guidelines to be inequitable or appropriate. The reasoning in Kush has no basis of the merits in the present case because the holding there was constrained by the requirements regarding child support. Moreover, here the court determined the defendant's actual earnings on the basis of evidence on the record, and thus the defendant's second claim fails. And the third claim, um, which was that the defendant claims that the court erred in basing its alimony award solely on the defendant's gross income as opposed to his net income. Specifically, he argues that the court made no effort to determine his net income, and there was no evidence for which the court could determine net income. It is well settled that a court must base child support and alimony orders on available net income of the parties, not gross income. However, the proper application of this principle is context-specific. The court will differentiate between an order that is a function of gross income and one that is based on gross income. The term based, as used in this context, connotes an order that only takes into consideration the party's gross income and not the party's net income. Therefore, an order that takes cognizance of the party's disposable income may be proper even if it is expressed as a function of the party's gross earnings. An omission by the trial court does not compel the conclusion that the court's order was improperly based on gross income, but the record indicates that the court considered evidence from which it could determine a party's net income, and it did not state that it relied on the party's gross earnings to form the basis of its order. In Kelman v. Kelman, the court, appellate court rejected a similar claim, finding that although the trial court made reference to the party's gross incomes, it did not expressly state that it was ranked solely on gross earnings in framing its order. It follows that when a court fails to state explicitly that an award for alimony is based on net income, it does not automatically negate the validity of the award. Here, the defendant failed to provide any tax information from which the court could ascertain his income, and his decision reflects that it considered evidence such as his historical annual earnings, credit card records, total cash assets. Additionally, the court took notice of prior court orders and arrangements. Although it deemed the defendant's financial documents to be untrustworthy standing alone, it took them and the defendant's spending habits into consideration when fashioning the alimony award. While the defendant further argues that the court used fictitious numbers and had no evidence before it to support a finding of his net income, however, that argument is without merit for two reasons. First, because the defendant lacked candor and endeavored to misrepresent facts before the court. The appellate court has consistently held that a party who fails to provide information to the court will not later be heard to complain about the court-made orders without sufficient information. Second, 
the court considered the defendant's spending habits as well as other bills he had agreed to pay during the pendency, and it was not improper for the court to consider the evidence it had before it to determine the party's net income, respective financial needs and abilities. It followed that the trial court did not solely rely on the defendant's gross income to form the basis of its alimony award. The court merely referenced the gross income, which is not improper. Additionally, our Supreme Court has repeatedly held that the trial court is not required to make specific reference to the criteria it considered when making its decision, and higher courts will presume correctness of its decision and assume that the court considered the appropriate statutory and evidentiary underpinnings in fashioning its financial orders. Therefore, although the court did not expressly state that it considered the defendant an income in determining alimony, the court will infer that the court considered the relevant statutory factors and all the evidence submitted by the parties. Final claim was that the trial court abuses discretion by awarding alimony to the plaintiff to punish him for alleged bad behavior. The purpose of alimony is not to punish, but to meet one's continuing duty to the sport. In determining whether to award alimony, the court shall consider the factors in 46B82A, and it's not required to make express findings to each of the criteria. The defendant's argument ignores the breadth of 46B82A, which permits the court to take into consideration the causes for the breakdown of the marriage in fashioning an alimony award. There was no requirement that trial courts must weigh the factors equally. Additionally, the court notes that the trial court may place varying degrees of importance in each criteria according to the factual circumstances of each case, and the trial court is not required to state how it weighed the criteria. Accordingly, the court's findings that the defendant's extramarital affair and his poor business decisions led to the breakdown of the marriage is amply supported by the record. It follows that this claim must also fail as the court is permitted to take into consideration all causes for the dissolution of the marriage when determining whether to award alimony. In sum, the trial court awarded a fair amount of alimony to the plaintiff and took into consideration the correct factors to determine the alimony award. The trial court had also found evidence that the defendant taking his 22-year-old employee paramour on vacations, buying her expensive gifts, and paid for her expenses such as car insurance. Hello everyone, this is Rich Rockman. We've got a new case that was published February 9th, 
He was placed in foster care until September of 2019, and later placed with his godmother. On September 30th, 2019, the respondent filed a motion to revoke commitment. On October 19, 2019, the petitioner filed a motion for a psychological evaluation of Mark Conn and the respondent. The court, Judge Conway, denied the motion as the respondent refused to cooperate. On December 26, 2019, the court used a memorandum of decision regarding the motion to revoke commitment. I'm sorry, the court issued a memorandum of decision regarding the motion to revoke commitment. Mark Conn's permanency plan was to be placed in the care of the respondent. To this end, a reunification service set forth three goals for the respondent. First was consistent treatment and progress to her mental health. Second, engaging in appropriate conversations with Marcon, specifically to gain a better understanding of his needs, mentally and physically, and to learn how to assist him in managing his behaviors. And third was to develop positive effects, positive and effective forms of discipline. In September 2019, um, they, it was recommended that Marcon not return to the respondent's care as she had failed failed to meet all of these goals. The court found that although she had been participating in weekly therapy, her progress had not improved enough to ensure Marquand's needs would be met. It's further noted that her therapist was unable to identify ways that the respondent could be begin to properly care for Marquand. Based on its findings, the court concluded that absent a credible psychological evaluation, it would be impossible to understand how the respondent will act with Marquand. Therefore, it denied the respondent's motion to revoke commitment. Furthermore, the court reconsidered its initial denial of the petitioner's motion for a psych evaluation and ordered the respondent to participate in one. Finally, finding that his evalu this evaluation and her sustained follow-through with treatment could be the key to a reinvigorated reunification process. Respondent then appealed from the trial court's order requiring her to participate in a psych eval. Her appeal, however, is limited to her claim that the court abused discretion by compelling her to participate in the evaluation. The claim is that the denial uh, of the motion to revoke commitment was a combined judgment with the psychological evaluation. The respondent first claims that the court improperly issued the psych eval sui spati because the court's earlier ruling denying the petitioner's motion for the evaluation was res judicata. The motion was not before the court at the time of the order, and the order violated her right to remain silent. The petitioner responded that the court's order for the evaluation is not an immediately appealable final judgment, and therefore the court does not have jurisdiction over this appeal. The standard of review. The lack of final judgment implicates the subject matter jurisdiction of an appellate court to hear an appeal. A determination regarding subject matter jurisdiction is a question of law over which the appellate court exercises plenary review. The appellate courts have a duty to dismiss, even on their own initiative, any appeal that they lack jurisdiction to hear. Because this court's jurisdiction, because the appellate court's jurisdiction over appeals is prescribed by statute, the court must determine the threshold question of whether the appeal is taken from a final judgment for considering the merits of the claim. The respondent believes that the court's judgment denying her motion to revoke commitment granted her a right of appeal as it encompassed the order for psychological evaluation. However, this argument is belied by the fact that in her present appeal, she characterized the action that constitutes the appealable final judgment as a post-judgment order compelling the psychological evaluation. The appellate court observed in the past that the construction of a judgment is a question of law, and to determine the meaning of the judgment, the court must ascertain the intent of the trial court from the language used and, if necessary, the surrounding circumstances. By observing the aforementioned factors, this court, the appellate court concluded that the judgment denying the respondent's motion to revoke commitment was separate from the order for psychological evaluation. The court's memorandum outlined its reasoning for denying the motion to revoke commitment, and it sua sponte revisited its prior ruling regarding the evaluation. The fact that the evaluation and denial of the respondent's motion were addressed in the same memorandum of law is not dispositive of whether the ruling should be viewed as a single 
immediately appealable judgment. While the trial court laid out its rationale for reconsidering the evaluation, it did not suggest that its denial of the motion to revoke commitment was based on its decision to order the evaluation. In fact, the court expressly characterized its order for the evaluation as potentially benefiting the future prospect of unification following its denial of the motion to revoke commitment. The court recognized that its order was merely a tool in the process that began the petitioner's uncared-for petition, and that an ultimate decision regarding unification was yet to be made. It follows that there was no basis to conclude that the court's ruling to deny the motion to revoke commitment was affected by the order of psychological evaluation. The holding was that the motion to revoke commitment and the order for a psych eval were not a combined judgment, and therefore petitioner's immediate appeal of the evaluation alone is not reviewable by this court. Claim 2, the Curcio exception. Petitioner's alternative claim is that if the evaluation order was interlocutory, it nonetheless is immediately appealable. Our Supreme Court has recognized that certain otherwise interlocutory orders may be final judgments for purposes of appeal, and the court may deem this interlocutory order as having attributes of a final judgment if the ruling falls within either the two prongs outlined in Curcio. Under Curcio, interlocutory orders are immediately appealable if the order or ruling, one, terminates a separate and distinct proceeding, or two, so concludes the rights of the parties that further proceedings cannot affect them. The first prong of the Curcio test requires that the order being appealed from be severable from the central cause of action so the main action could proceed independently of the ancillary proceeding. If the interlocutory ruling is merely a step along the road to final judgment, then it does not satisfy the first prong of Curcio. It must appear that the interlocutory ruling will not impact directly on any aspect of the action. The second prong of the Curcio test requires that there must be a colorable claim that is one that is superficially well-founded but that may ultimately be deemed invalid, and two, to a right that has both legal and practical value, three, that is presently held by virtue of a statute or the state or federal constitution, four, that is not dependent on the exercise of judicial discretion, and five, that would be irretrievably lost, causing irreparable harm to the appellant without immediate appellate review. The second prong focuses upon the nature of the rights involved and requires that the party seeking to appeal must establish that a trial court's order threatens the preservation of a right, statutorily or constitutionally recognized, and that right will be irretrievably lost and the party irreparably harmed unless they immediately appeal. The court finds that the order for psyche eval did not terminate a separate and distinct proceeding. The order was not made in connection with any pending matter before the court, and it was an integral part of the ongoing proceedings involving the respondent, and Mark Quant following the uncared-for petition brought forth. The results of the eval may affect the outcome of a later adjudication, however, it is not in dispute that at the time of the order, Mark Quant was adjudicated uncared for. Moreover, the court understood its statutory obligation to ascertain whether the petitioner's permanence plan for Mark Quant is in his best interest. Accordingly, the order cannot be severed from the central cause of action, which is discerning whether reunification is possible, and therefore the order is merely a step along the road to a final judgment regarding unification. The court therefore finds that the first prong under Curcio was not satisfied. Next, the court addresses the second prong of the Curcio test, guided by relevant appellate decisions pertaining to rulings in family matters and a Supreme Court ruling in Madigan v. Madigan. Madigan held that a temporary order of custody is a final judgment for purposes of immediate appeal if a parent's custodial rights during dissolution proceedings cannot otherwise be vindicated at any time in any form. It further found that temporary custody orders fall within a narrow class of interlocutory orders that are immediately appealable under Curcio because they affect their irre irreplaceable time and relationship shared between a parent and child. Furthermore, the Supreme Court noted that temporary custody orders are unique and that temporary custody may establish a foundation for a stable long-term relationship that becomes an important factor in determining final custodial arrangements. 
follows that because temporary custody orders are not reversible and can affect the determination of custody, they satisfy the second prong of Curcio. Moreover, this court, relying on Madigan, has held that a trial court's extension of the commitment of a minor to the petitioner is a final judgment for purposes of bringing an immediate appeal, citing the case of Inri Taji, where the court found that the extended commitment would significantly disrupt the time a parent would get with their child if no appeal were possible. Further found that no other proceedings underlying an action would affect the commitment order until the petitioner either moved to extend commitment again or terminate the respondent's parental rights. <coughs> Excuse me. Additionally, the court looks to the Supreme Court decision in Taft v. Betcher. In Taft, the court held that an order barring the parties from one, for one year from seeking review on the issues of custody and visitation was immediately appealable. The Supreme Court relied on Madigan and determined that an order barring the parties from one year from seeking review may interview with the parents' custodial rights over a significant period in a manner that cannot be addressed at a later time. A lost opportunity to spend significant time with one's child is not recoverable. Any lost time a parent may have had to enhance the relationship with their child cannot be replaced by a subsequent modification one year later. It followed that an immediate appeal of the order was the only reasonable method of ensuring that the important rights surrounding the parent-child relationship were protected. Here, the respondent does not raise a claim related to the court's denial of a motion to revoke commitment or to any other type that interferes with custody, custody or visitation rights. The evaluation is not dispositional and does not affect the irreplaceable time and relationship that exists between a parent and child. Moreover, it does not risk establishing a relationship between a child and another suitable custodian that it may impact custody rights. Rather, the respondent asserted that an immediate appeal was necessary to avoid irreparable harm to a right to remain silent in neglect proceedings under 46B-137. The court observed that the order for evaluation did not directly infringe on her right to remain silent or rule on the admissibility of any statement made by her. The respondent has not taken any action with respect to complying with the order, but if she later refuses to comply with the order, then she will be found in contempt, at which time she may bring an immediate appeal. Additionally, at a future proceeding, the court may enter an appealable judgment on an adverse inference drawn from her failure to participate in the evaluation, at which point the respondent will be able to challenge the order as improper. It is also possible that if she were to refuse to answer some or all questions in the evaluation based on her right to remain silent, if a judge were to issue an adverse judgment based on her exercise of that right, the respondent could appeal that judgment on the grounds of the impropriety regarding the evaluation order. Lastly, the respondent will have the opportunity to challenge the propriety of the order if there is an adverse ruling based on the results obtained in the psyche bill. All of these examples demonstrate that the respondent's rights are far from being finally resolved. The policy concerning the underlying final judgment rule are to discourage piecemeal appeals and to facilitate the speedy and orderly disposition of cases. The interviewer at this stage would encourage piecemeal appeals. This type of order at issue here is an intermediate step along the road to facilitate reunification and provides a factual predicate for future custody determinations. The order at issue does not threaten irrevocable harm to the parent-child relationships or the rights of the respondents. Holding, in absence of an immediate right to appeal, the respondent's right to challenge the order has not been irretrievably lost, and in light of the foregoing, the order from which the respondent appeals is not part of the judgment denying her motion to revoke commitment. Thus, the order was not a final judgment under either prong of the Curcio test. The conclusion is that the appeal was dismissed uh, and not considered on the merits of the respondent's claim that the court based abused its discretion in ordering the psychological evaluation. The order was not a final judgment, and the respondent cannot immediately Thanks for listening to the Connecticut Case Law Podcast. 
Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you get alerted every time a new episode is released. And to give us a five-star rating. You can also watch this podcast on our YouTube channel each week if you prefer to watch in the comfort of your office. Or stream it on ConnecticutCaseLawPodcast.com. The Connecticut Case Law Podcast is sponsored by Ruane Attorneys at Law, the Connecticut Trial Firm, and Rich Rockland Law. Attorney Jay Ruane, Connecticut Jurist Number 415988, is responsible for the content of this advertisement. See you next week.